So our topic this morning is going to be science and Torah. We're doing a series on learning the thought of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, as we approach his Yorzad. His Yorzad will actually be tomorrow evening, which is Chof Mar Cheshvan. He's joined us for a very special community program right here in our shul for that. But, but, but as we get there, as we're spending time on this, we're going to spend a little bit of time learning some of his thoughts. And today we're moving into that area of science and Torah with some of the remarkable perspectives that Rabbi Sachs shares and continues to share on this, this, uh, this incredible topic, something which has interested me for many, many, many years. Let's, let's start at the very beginning and try to, try to appreciate this. Uh, um, so, first of all, I want, I want to take a moment to thank um, um, Anshul and Esther Weiss, who are sponsoring today's share in, uh, in honor of the Yorzad of Anshul's father, Chaim Weiss, Chaim Ben An- Asher Anshul, Olav Hashalom. It's a pleasure always to be learning with you and with your family. Amen. Hashem, you shall have continued, continued smachos, and the Hashem should have an aliyah. So, generally speaking, through the course of the 1800s, religion as a whole, organized religion, became under attack from many different, from many, many different angles. As discoveries in many academic circles advanced, questions started arising on religion as a whole. Some of the questions arose in the realm of astronomy, some of them arose in the realm of academic Bible study, some in archaeology, some of them in biology. Many, many different questions that, that arose. So just the starting point of a lot, of a lot of this was just simply the discovery of the vastness of the universe. Meaning to say that when you learn the Torah, when you learn the Hebrew Bible, we talk about what's called an anthropocentric version of creation, which means to say that we're hearing about creation as it relates to us. There's the seas, there's the birds, there's the, there, there's the land, there's the terrestrial animals. We understand that. But then suddenly this, the, the human beings started gaining the capacity to discover much more. As an example, so just one, one moment in this age, we're talking about from the 1790s really to the 1830s, the Romantic era, era in terms of poetry, but in terms of science, there was a huge explosion of science in many different arenas. One, one, one individual was a person by the name of William Herschel, was originally German, but later on British astronomer, and he was able to develop astronomy to such a degree, not just with the, he started, not just with his, Technology in terms of the telescopes, the seven feet telescope developing to the 20 foot telescope, and ultimately the 40 foot telescope, which was not as usable, it was too big to be used. But he was a remarkable individual, and he started disca- discovering that nebulae were made, of, were made of star clusters. And he started arguing that every star, in fact, had micro universes around it. We would have solar systems un- yet undiscovered. His methodology, not just his technology, but his methodology of how to sweep the sky with the, te- with the, the telescopes enabled him to discover twin stars, the notion of two stars which revolved around each other. And there was this certain sense of excitement as he discovered a new planet, which he named after King George at the time. It was called Uranus, and this was the new, a new planet was discovered. I mean, this was a remarkable age of, of discovery which was occurring. And as the world discovered more, suddenly this, this thank you so much, this notion of the rudimentary idea of, of the, what was seen as the, the simple Bible became, fell into question. So as an example, around this time, there was a very, a very important um, scientist, his name was, um, was Laplace. Um, he, is known, he is known more for today in, in mathematics for his equations. The Laplace equations, if you're in, if you're in calculus 2, you'll come across them. Um, but in a, a conversation he had with Napoleon, who at this point in time was the um, emperor 
of um, France. There's a famous conversation which is had where Napoleon says, they tell me you have written this large book on the system of the universe. So he summarized the universe in a, three, in a three-volume set. And he said, um, sorry, a five-volume set. And he says, and I've never mention, uh, even mentioned its creator. And his arrogant response was, Sire, I have no need for that hypothesis. Right? The hypothesis of God is not necessary for me because I've, I've worked it all out. I can see the extent of this large and very complex universe. That was the response that Laplace had. It's an, ama- it's an amazing thing, the, the hubris of humanity. But it wasn't just in terms of the expanse of the universe that they were discovering, but it was also the age of the universe. Now suddenly we, we, uh, we start hearing in the 1800s of incredible discoveries, discoveries of fossilized creatures, creatures which we just simply don't have. And they go back and they start dating how far back they go, and they go well further back than the, the genealogy given in the Bible. And the question started enlarging in terms of, well, where did these things come from? Where did they disappear? And why does the Bible not talk about it? Why does the Bible seem to be so rudimentary and so simple? And yet the universe seems so complex. People started investigating in biology. And at this point in time, there was a, there was a large, um, there, was, there was a movement of discovering the human body and understanding the human body and trying to find the soul. It was just, there was a discussion in the early 1700s, is, is, there, is there a soul? There were doctors who were able to, di- to dissect the human body to, to such a point. They said that they, you can't find the soul on the lab table. There is no soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who were, who were in, influenced by such level of thought were uh, uh, an individual in, in, the, in the realm of poetry, Percy Shelley, ultimately committed suicide, husband of, of Mary Shelley, what is Mary Shelley famous for writing in the, 18, uh, in, the 17, in the early 1800s? Frankenstein. Frankenstein, in fact, was an exploration of the same notion. Uh, Frankenstein was actually not as portrayed in the plays even written in her lifetime, which is, uh, we're just marking the bicentennial of the writing of Frankenstein. Frankenstein was a talking, thinking individual. He's not a monster. If you have a chance to read Frankenstein and understand the complexity of the soul of this, so to speak, this parahuman, is this, is this a human being or not, created by science, by melding together the physics of the flesh? Essentially, that was the same argument of the time. Is, is there necessarily a soul if you can have the biological wherewithal and the platform just to have an existence? These are what's, this is what's happening in the, in the, the backdrop of the 1800s. It's, it's in this era that as well academic Bible, biblical criticism is arriving. Well, it seems that there seems to be lots of different voices. Well, maybe there are different Authors suggest higher criticism. So at this point in time, science on all different fronts, religion is ge- in, in general in defense, is responding to many of the claims from the outside. It is into this milieu that we, we, we have a very famous voyage which is recorded on the Beagle as it goes out to the Galapagos Islands, headed by a researcher by the name of Charles Darwin, who li- later publishes his findings in a book known as The Origin of the Species, where he presents an a idea called um, evolution, which is essentially a mechanism called, um, called natural selection, which is, which is uh, um, easily understood because of well, well, the notion of survival of the fittest. Fittest does not mean the strongest. Fittest means whatever necessary um, biological accoutrement is going to provide fitness for survival. And ultimately, though that group of animals, bacteria, Amoeba will be the one that's going to survive. Um, so as an example, what he points out is, is he goes to the Galapagos Island and he finds many different types of birds who have different types of beaks. 
And he points out that they all must come from one type, and there are many subtypes. And why do they develop different types of beak? For the natural, for the environments that they find themselves in, necessary to survive. So, as an example, if you have, if you have a, um, a let's say, a herd of giraffe. I'm not sure what the, that word is. You know, every group of animals has their own group. I'm not sure what the giraffe's um, collective name is. It is interesting to notice that just as a, as a quick, as an interesting aside from the Department of Interesting Group Words, um, ravens are called a murder. A murder of ravens is the is uh, is uh, is the is the um, is the is, is the name. But before a tower of giraffes. Thank you. So if you have let's say a tower of giraffes, and and it's a and there's a drought. There's an ongoing drought in a number of years. Thank you, Shalom. There's a drought for a number of years. And there is sparse eating, so it's very hard for them to survive. Naturally speaking, the giraffes which are going to survive are the ones which are going to have the longer necks, who can reach the higher branches, or perhaps who have the ability to raise their, their, their front feet a little higher and be able to stand on the back, back feet with greater balance to reach the higher, the higher leaves. Simply, simply put, which means that the shorter giraffes will be more likely throughout that drought season to die, thereby... The, the process of natural selection has occurred that the taller giraffes will make producing taller giraffes for the next generation. And over an incremental amount of time, you'll be able to see that generally speaking, there'll be more um, taller giraffes. That's the notion of natural selection and ultimately leading to evolution of the, of the giraffe species as all the shorter giraffes die off because of survival purposes. And this goes on, and that's on a smaller level, but then it goes on a, on a, on a, on a macro level if you see that all species ultimately come back to one general type. Now, what is interesting is, is that when trying to deal with, when religion tries to deal with these challenges in all these different fields, and religion essentially was under attack in so many different ways, there are many who are try to answer it on a, techn a technical basis. Well, technically speaking, the age of the universe, well, we have answers to it. Technically speaking, the vastness of the universe, we understand. You understand, what was happening over here was this incredible expansion of time and space, and also the mechanisms in the, in the time and space. But truth be told, it's, interestingly, it's interesting to note that the technical answers are less of the trouble. The technical questions are less troubling. There are many, many wonderful answers and books published on the technical questions. Evolution provides more than just a technical question. It provides a theological question. Because the argument that Charles Darwin ultimately was making was that there was another process other than specific design or a creator that enabled the process of the creation of the human being. And that is a haphazard natural selection which evolved to the point where there was a more sophisticated primate than the rest who dominated the planet. That means to say that Darwin essentially provided an alternative theory, a haphazard theory, as to the existence of humankind, which is an alternative theory to that which the Bible has provided, which was the specific creation of humankind based on a creator. That's, that, that is the most difficult of all of these uh, the questions to answer and to, to, to discuss. Um, just to give, you, to give it words, this to me is such a powerful description. I remember when I was studying this when I was in university, um, learning in memoriams from uh, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, um, who was the, po the poet royal in, the, um, in the Victorian England. Remember, at this point in time, England is the most powerful nation upon earth in the 1800s in Victorian England, and he is the, the, the poet to, uh, to the Queen at this point in time, Queen Victoria, and he writes, he, this is written, in memoriam was written in over a, a span of years, but it was published around 1851, this is just after the origin of the species, and he's a, a devout religious 
I'm Christian, and he is troubled. Listen to the words of how he responds to evolution, the, the arguments of evolution. For this is in memoriam in paragraph um, 56. He says the following, From scarped cliff and quarried stone, she cries a thousand types are gone. I care for nothing, all shall go. Thou makest thine appeal to me. By the way, notice the iambic pentameter. We're in classic Victorian poetry. It's beautiful to read, just to understand the, 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 the structure. What's he saying? The, what's the, the, the a thousand types are gone? What's he saying? All the animals which were died, died out, right? All the animals which were killed out by their, <laughs> by, by their, their colleagues. I bring, to li- I bring to life, I bring to death. The spirit does, does but mean the breath. I know no more, and he shall, uh, and, and he shall be. He shall he man her last work, who seemed so fair, such splendid purpose in his eyes, who rolled the psalm into the wintry skies, who built him fanes of fruitless prayer, who trusted God, was love indeed, and love creation finals law, though nature red in tooth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. What he's saying over here? God, you created life and you created death. That's what we've believed, and that's what we've always lived by. But I look at the ravine, which is where nature, red in tooth and claw. What's red in tooth and claw? Is animal killing each other. Meaning to say, the bestiality in the world, in the savannah around us, in the jungles around us, as one animal is killing another animal, and species are running out, and species are being extinct by animals themselves. It seems that the process of creation was much more of a haphazard arrival at human being, rather than he give life, he give death. That's his, you understand what he's saying over here? Just such a powerful, uh, powerful. And then I left out a few paragraphs in this, but the concluding paragraph that he has in this section is, O O life as futile then as frail. Frail being the frailty of life, when ultimately it's really the powerful, the fittest which dominate. O for thy voice to soothe and bless. Who's he speaking to? God. What hope of answer or redress? How can we answer these questions behind the veil, behind the veil. And his only answer is, we don't understand. That's what he says. You understand the challenge is to hear the voice. He's crying out here. Theologically, he's asking, what is going on over here? So to appreciate this, just from a perspective, there's so many different perspectives. I'd like to share a few different perspectives from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And this is what we're going to be spending a little bit of time on. First of all, the notion of science and Torah in the first place. Forgetting the specific questions right now. Science and Torah. Generally speaking, religion has seen to be there's a battleground. There's science and then there's religion. And how does science and religion fight each other? How does religion pr- disprove science? That's generally speaking, it's a, it's a war and we're in the trenches and we're advancing a few feet and uh, we've got, we're, we're retra- retracing our steps a few meters. That's generally the, the perspective. Right? Sachs has a little bit of a different perspective on the whole subject as a, 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 at large. So we're going to look at three different quotations through three different books. Well, I'm Rabbi Sachs. The first is a book called Future Tense, which Rabbi Sachs wrote actually. This is uh, when he was in Chief Rabbi, I'll tell you the year of publication was 2009. So this is towards the end of his uh, Chief Rabbinate. And in it he says the following, We can now state the difference between two, the two modes of knowledge. Chochmah is the truth we discover. Torah is the truth we inherit. Chochmah is the universal heritage of humankind. Torah is the specific heritage of Israel. Chachma is what we attain by being in the image of God. Torah is what we guides Jews as the people of God. Chachma is acquired by seeing and reasoning. Torah is received by listening and responding. Chachma tells us what it is. Torah tells us what it ought to be. Chachma is about facts. 
Torah is about commands. Chachma yields descriptive scientific laws. Torah yields prescriptive behavioral laws. Chachma is about creation. Torah is about revelation. Just a magnificent description of the different modalities of what religion is supposed to be doing and what science is supposed to be doing. Yes, it is wonderful that we can surmise, summarize, gaze at, theorize, even prove certain ideas, but that's from the human perspective. That's all chokhmah. And therefore, says, says uh, Rav Sachs, he's actually quoting the, the famous Gemara, which says, tamim. If you see wisdom, if you see reasoning, if you see logic, if you see uh, conjectures, believe it. Torah bagayim al-tamin. You want revelation, tradition, where it comes from, for what it should be, that al-tamin. That's given to the nation of Israel, which has the tradition as to what the world should be looking like. Very different ideas. Now, if we stopped over here, just with this quotation as well, we may be inclined to move towards the notion which was later stated, or actually earlier stated from this publication, by Stephen Jay Gold, who is a very famous scientist, who um, evolutionary bio, uh, 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 had perspectives on science, but also from a religious, we'll call friendly perspective, where he called science and religion non-overlapping magisteria, where there's two realms, science and, and religion, and they don't necessarily overlap with each other. Rara Sachs disagrees with that principle altogether. He says that actually science and religion are describing the same reality but from different angles. So famously speaking, and I really highly recommend this, it's not an easy book to read at all, but The Great Partnership is essentially Rara Sachs' book where he develops the theories of science and Torah. It is a really remarkable perspective because it's very holistic. It's not simply on, on technical questions. And he says the following, I want to argue in the, in the next source that we need both religion and science. They are, they, that they are compatible and more than compatible, they are two essential perspectives that allow us to see the universe in its three-dimensional depth. The creative tension between the two is what keeps us sane, grounded in physical reality without losing our spiritual sensibility. It keeps us human and humane. The story I'm about to tell you is about the human mind and its ability to do two quite different things. One is the ability to break things down into their constituent parts and see how they mesh and interact. The other is the ability to join things together so that they tell a story and to join people together so they form relationships. The best example of the first is science, of the second, religion. Science takes things apart to tell us how they work. Religion puts them back together to see what they mean. Without going into the neuroscience detail, the first is predominantly left brain activity. The second is associated with the right hemisphere. Both are necessary, but they are very different. The left brain is good at sorting and analyzing things. The right brain is good at forming relationships with people. Right, Sachs actually goes on, if you, it's worthwhile just noting this entire chapter, uh, is, is the difference between right-facing, right-oriented languages and left-oriented languages, which actually relate to the opposite hemisphere of the brain which is a very fascinating observation in terms of what the different languages actually convey in terms of the ideas and the structure of thought more than simply just the words they're conveying as well. Very, very remarkable perspective. But the notion is, over here, and this is the, the, this is the thesis of the entire book, is that, li that, that, that line is that science takes things apart to see how they work, and that's what we've been doing. We completely dissect and we put under the microscope and we, uh, and we see the different parts and we understand how a cell works and the different components and how they work to each other, with each other in an ecosystem. But religion puts things back together to see what they mean. And that means to say that what religion is going to describe is not going to necessarily be relating to how the different pieces work because that's not the point of religion. It's going to be telling us this different story. Rashi already says this at the beginning of Bereshis. 
Rashi tells us that when it says Bereshis, clearly it, if it meant in the beginning as is translated, it should be Bereshis with a patach, which means Bereshis, and in the beginning. The fact that it says Bereshis means to say that that's not the correct translation. Rather, it's a contraction of two words, which is Bishvil Reshis, in order, because of Reshis. Rashi asks, well, what is the Reshis? Rashi gives us a few perspectives. One is Bishvil Yisrael, Shnikra Reshis. Israel is dubbed the term Reshis. Bishvil Torah, Shnikra Reshis. Because of the Torah, which is made Reshis, which means, what's the Torah really answering in the first word? Not what, but why? And essentially what science always asks and essentially answers is how. What religion asks and answers is why. Ironically speaking, a lot of times in the hubris and the arrogance of humanity, we often say in science, why? Why does lightning happen? No, 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 no. You've not explained why. You can explain how it occurs. You've not told me why it occurred right now. That's a very important distinction to make, and that's what the Torah is saying. Rashi points out that clearly, as we see in the second passage in the Torah, the Torah is not describing the actual mechanics of creation because there was water in the next passage, but the Torah does not describe the creation of water. So Rashi is saying, while creation is going on, what was the purpose of this creation process? That's, that should be obvious to anybody who reads the Torah, right? Because the Torah never describes that point of creation. The why versus the how. That's what Rav Sachs argues. And most, most recently, in his most, most recent book, which is called Morality, again, this is, this is just a, a necessary component of one's, uh, one's psyche as a, Jew, as, as a living, breathing human being, and specifically a Jew as a right to the world around us and the world which needs to heal, which is the reason why this book was written, um, published last year. He says the following, and, and finally, just to, clear, to clarify this point, in, the, in Source 5, science cannot in and of itself give an account of human dignity because human dignity is based on human freedom. Freedom is a concept that lies outside the scope of science. Science cannot locate freedom because the scientific world is one of causal relationships. A stone is not free to fall or not to fall. Lightning does not choose when and where to strike. A scientific law links one physical phenomenon to another without the intervention of will and choice. To the extent that there, there is science of human behavior, there is an implicit denial of the freedom of human behavior. This is precisely what Spinoza, Marx, and Freud were arguing, that freedom is an illusion. But if, free, if freedom is an illusion, then so is the d- human dignity based on that freedom. Science cannot but demonstrate, de- de- deconsecrate the human being, thereby opening the gate to possible desecration. Meaning to say, in the end of the day, it's, it's fine to describe the mechanisms by which even the human mind works, but we still make choices. And that's where religion comes in. That's where science becomes dangerous. That's where science becomes dangerous. When we have the arrogance to suggest that now we've explained the entire thing and we can now project in Newtonian determinism why every human being is a billiard, a billiard ball, and we can explain how ultimately everything will will expand. This is his general theory. Now let's put this theory to practice because that's that's we'll call it at a 20,000 foot perspective. Okay, so religion and science um, are, are describing different things. They, they're not, in, they're not in, in, uh, um, dissonance with each other, they're in consonance. But how does that actually look? So Rasax points out that if we're to look at what Charles Darwin actually suggested, there are a number of things that we can learn about which religion talks about and actually celebrates as well. So the first, he, he points out five distinct lessons before we deal with the actual the dissonance. Let's understand the consonance. So first of all, the, first, the idea of diversity. The, what Charles Darwin essentially is saying is that life is incredibly diverse. And systems and all living organisms will diversify based on the needs of their, of their environment. So just as an example, right now we know that the beetles have over 350,000 species. <laughs> That's a remarkable number. Just to appreciate that. 350,000 species. 
Okay, now that's not counting the number of beetles in each of these, uh, of these species. The Torah talks about this, and when describing the Tehillim, which most basically describes creation and God's wondrous creation, is what we say every Rosh Chodesh is Baruch Nafshi. In Baruch Nafshi, that's precisely what, what, what Dara Melech is actually um, identifying in, his, in, in Source 6. Tehillim Kuvdalet, Pasuk Kuvdalet, Marabu Maasecho Hashem, how many folds. That's not just how many, how many for how complex your creation is. Kulam b'chachmasis, so they're all made with wisdom. Malha aretz kinyonecha, the earth is full of your creations. Zayam gadol urechav yodayim, shom remes ve'en mispar chayos ketanos im gadolos. It's just, your yonder sea, great and wide, therein are creeping creatures, innumerable living creatures, both small and great. Right now, the estimate is, is that there is 8 million different species of, um, of animals. And only about 1.5 of them have been actually classified, just to understand the complexity of life. Diversity is a remarkable thing, but it wasn't like David Melech ignored that. In fact, that's, that's part of the platform of his realization of the greatness of God, is the diversity of the system itself. Goes, goes, and this, to me, the second point I think is the most powerful, we'll come back to this point again, is that Hashem created a creative system, a creative creation. This is such a brilliant perspective. As an example, if you look at the metaphor of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the second parak of Bereshis, when he relates to, to mankind, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu forms and creates mankind, it is not the mechanic in the woodshed making the, the creation. What is the image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the second parak? What's the, so to speak, the human, the human um, uh, profession that is associated with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Coal. Was that not, not, not just, uh, what, what? what? What, what, what specific profession is Hashem associated with? The gardener. The God, not the tailor, actually. That, that's going to be the, the paragimel. But interesting now, Hashem plants a garden. He plants the, the, the fruit, he plants the vegetation necessary to grow. He place, uh, places Adam in it, if you pursue him later. To cultivate it and to protect it. Meaning to say the image is, is not a mechanic creating a final product. It's actually creating the beginning of a product. Think about that for a moment. Hashem creating the beginning of the, pro, uh, of the product, which is going to now grow and fester and develop and diversify. The image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's much more sophisticated than we imagine. In fact, there's an interesting perspective that if, if you look at the last word of creation as a whole, the last word of creation, which is not the end of Perak Aleph, it's the beginning of, of actually Perak Beis, which we say every Friday night three times on a Friday night, is in Vayichunu. The last word is, Hashem blesses the, 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 the seventh day. He separates and distinguishes it. Because he, he, he finished on it all his melacha to do. <laughs> what does it mean to do? He stopped doing. So what does it mean to do? It's a very, it's a, a, every word is necessary. In fact, every word actually is... Has, so what, what does that mean? So the, the, the Mepharshim debate this. But the necessary is on the most basic level. Uh, he says um, in Source 9, He gave the ability of the creation to reproduce itself. But more than that, Ababanel says, in fact, there's a very famous medrash which says that there was an interaction between, I believe this is Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yeshua, and, the, and a certain Matronissa. There was a certain Roman 
um, dignitary, a, a woman, who turns to Rabbi Yeshua and says, after God f- finished making creation, what does God do? Right? There were many um, who thought that God went fishing right? and sort of created the world and then left it to, to, to its own. That's not what happened. That's one of the things the Ramban talks about, one of the mistakes made in Mitzrayim. Maybe there is a deity, but the deity is no longer interacts with the world. Right? So, so what is HaKadosh Baruch Hu doing? So Rabbi Yeshua says he's Mezaveg Zivugim. Hashem is making Shidduchim. Right? Which, and and there's, a, there's a lot to be said about the, incre- the complexity necessary to create a Shidduch when it comes um, uh, uh, parallels to the creation of human beings. Now Rabbanel notes, what does that mean? Take a look at the last three lines in Rabbanel in Source 10. Right? Selamar. What this means is, Shebesheshe Zayom in Bora Hashem Hashem created X Nielo for six days. From there onwards, he took what was already there. Then he took all those basic building blocks and he now melded them together to develop from them a much more complex system. And that's Laasas. Think about this. And by the way, the Abarbanel was not responding to revolution, ever, to evolution. He lived in the 1500s, the 14 and 1500s. What he's saying over here is that Akash Baruch created a world which is creative. That's a very powerful perspective to think about. And Charles Darwin was just saying the same thing. He happened to work it out from his, uh, his journey on the, on the Beagle. Point number three is that all life derives from one source. If you go to the Museum of Natural History today, you can go and see that, uh, that in the Hall of Human Origins, there, is a, there are large charts which show you how each or all the different animals actually collapse to one, one species and how that species comes from. The, the previous species, you can see it all just from color-coded, right? And, and everything comes back to one, one starting point. Well, ultimately, you know, just as an example, in, the, the, in Matt Ridley's book the Geno- called Genome, which was published in 2000, he says a very, many, many wonderful things. It's a very, very fascinating book. He says, the three-letter word of genetic codes are the, exact, are the same in every creature. C, G, and A mean arginine, and C, G, C, G means alanine in bats, beetles, beech trees, bacteria, even in archaeobacteria um, living in boiling te- temperatures in sulfurous springs or viruses. Wherever in the world, whatever animal, plant, bug you look at, it is alive. It will use the same dictionary and know the same code. All life is one. Seaweed is your distant cousin and anthrax is your advanced relatives. The unity of life is an empirical fact. Which means to say, if you think about it, the same genetic code, it's raining DNA outside. Well, it, it's, it, that means to say is that everything comes back to a certain basic code. But that's what the Torah describes. The Torah describes exactly that. HaKadosh Baruch Hu creating a very simple world and developing that world into a much more complex world. It's interesting that many, many years ago, when the Rambam was writing Moran Nebuchim, he had a much more complex scientific question at hand. The people who he learned, he read, the Rambam, revered and learned tremendous things from the Greek philosophers. But there was a number of contentious issues. One contentious issue was the Greeks believed in what's called Olam Kadmon. What does that mean? The world always was. The Greeks, <laughs> in their arrogance, at the science of their time, believed that the world never had a starting point. For why should the world have a starting point? We can never actually attest to that. So the Raman Morivochim in the third book goes on to explain in a multi-step proof that the world must have a beginning because the Torah talks out of a Bereshis. It's It is... Um, heretical to suggest the world always was. And you know what the Rambam, what the Rambam would have given 
to being here in Bell Laboratories in New, in, in New Jersey upon the discovery of the background, background resonance of the Big Bang that the world had a beginning. What the Rambam would have said to, to, to have been there to realize that science finally caught up with itself and realized that they, they could prove that there was a beginning. That the Torah had been talking about that all the time. Right? That is a remarkable perspective. So think about this for a moment. What Darwin is ultimately saying was the same thing. It all came back to a starting point. It wasn't just always. It wasn't a static creation, a snapshot, which always was Yeah, That's actually more in line with what the Rambam was saying than the Greeks were, in, were saying in the first place. Uh, lesson number four. Lesson number four is that, and this is, a, this is something very beautiful to think about, and this comes back to the previous point as well, is that life is linguistic. There's a language to life. It's not simply a scientific equation. Is, as the Torah says, that it wasn't just because Hashem snapped his fingers, so to speak, Hashem spoke and those and creation coalesced around his actual language. The way that the mission in Perikrawas describes it is by Sarah Mamoris Olam. The world is created in ten utterances. It was necessary, it's almost as if the world is framed around code. And Rabbi Sachs argues, this is a very brilliant argument, just worthwhile thinking about it, is that it was actually in the 1940s that Turing suggested the notion of artificial intelligence. He created the computer, which, the computer system, which ultimately broke the enigma, which is the German code during World War II. And that he, was able to be able, he was able to ultimately save many lives. That was one of the turning points in the war, though it was only declassified afterwards, that they could break the German code. They used statistics as to how many codes they could actually n- pretend they knew and didn't know, so the Germans didn't know they'd changed their code, they, they, re- they discovered their code through the end part of the war. And Turing was one of the champions of the idea of artificial intelligence. In fact, still today, there's what's called the Turing test, which is, you can only discover when will artificial intelligence reach the point where if behind a screen you're talking to an artificial intelligence and you won't realize it's a human being. That's called the Turing test. Only once that idea of the language of artificial intelligence was created, where later on was the genome cracked in the 1950s once they understood the language. Which means that his argument is, is that we could only really understand the genome once we understood the idea of language being artificial intelligence in the first place. To understand that real intelligence is based on language as well. That's why, interestingly enough, Francis Collins, who really worthwhile reading, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, was an agnostic scientist, wrote a book called The Language of God, in which he argues that science taught him about godliness. The, what, he call, what he understands is, is altruism. Worthwhile reading, uh, Sir Francis Collins. Very brilliant, very brilliant book, looking back on the, t- the tools of creation from linguistics. Finally, for a point number five that R. Sachs points out, we haven't yet to deal with dissonance. We're still dealing with consonants right now is the interconnectedness of all life. So for instance, I mean, the, the Nevi'im have been talking about this for all, from time immemorial, just perhaps we weren't aware of it from the perspective of how profound, profound it is on a scientific level. Like as an example, source 15, Yeshayahu Anavi says, call Omer, Krav Omar, Maya Cross, a voice calls out and says, proclaim, and I said, what should I proclaim? It says, So all flesh is grass and all goodness is in the flowers of the field. That means to say that even the human being is part of the system, the greater ecosystem of something bigger. Another example in Kohelis, and we say this, uh, we, um, we say this actually um, in, in, more, in more somber uh, um, places in life. If you look at it on a certain level, 
Really, we all live, we all die, we all live the same kind of life. We all came from the dust and we all returned to dust. And that's ultimately, there's a certain realization, even in the sophistication of life and the direction and the purpose of life, that ultimately there's a, there's a, there's a certain ecosystem. It all comes back to itself. Actually, the very, very end of the origin of the species in one of the later versions, Charles Darwin actually says, and this is one of the concluding paragraphs, there's a grandeur in the sphere of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the Creator into few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. So that's his perspective, is, and, and if you think about it, to a certain degree, there's a lot of Torah in that itself to appreciate that perhaps we weren't understanding it to, to, to the right degree until the point uh, we, that, that, that this, was, this, was, uh, this was more classically discovered. Now, this, this is in terms of five specific lessons that Isaac says. If we lo- look at what Darwin is introducing, it's a profound perspective into what is actually saying in creation. But now, how do you account for the, the dissonance? The dissonance is really the, the most difficult part. It's not so much about the age of the universe, it's about the idea that ultimately Hashem says He created, He brew, He give life, He give death, right, as, as Tennyson said. Hashem created the world, but Darwin is essentially suggesting another mechanism as to the human being arriving. And that is simply a process of natural selection, careless essentially, without specific intent. How does one, one address that? So what, um, what is often suggested is that Darwin threw out the notion of the watchmaker. What is the notion of the watchmaker? So this comes back to an argument which was, it wasn't actually originally William Paley, it was actually in the early 1700s, there were were other philosophers who suggested this, but William Paley in 1802 wrote the following in his book called Natural Theology. Okay, he's a religious thinker, and here's what he says, I'm sure we're all familiar with this example, but here's it in his own writing. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitch my foot, foot against a stone, and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that. For anything I knew no, the, to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps be easy, very easy to show the absurdity of the answer. But suppose I found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the, how the watch had happened to be in that place. I should hardly think that the answer I had, uh, I, I had before given, that for anything I knew, the watch may have been here, for, uh, always been there. There must have existed at some time, at some place or at another, an artificer or artificers who, the watch, uh, who formed the watch for the purpose for which we f- actually uh, f- find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. Every indication or uh, contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch exists in the work of nature, with a difference on the side of nature of being greater or more and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. So how, how silly would it be, how infant, uh, infantile would it be to suggest that the rock, you know, there was a piece of metal which was blowing this direction, which is just the right size, and then a cog fell from that way, and the wind happened to be blowing a hand over here, and then there was a number which, it, it, the, 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 the degree of, of chance is absolutely nil that that could happen, that a watch could suddenly coalesce by itself. Now, just to clarify one point, why, this, why he uses the example of the watch. In the, in the 1700s, one of the greatest technological races was the, the race to discover longitude, right? Yeah, so, the, very good. Um, so, the, 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 the problem was the following. It's very easy to discover latitude, which is how far up 
you are on the earth if the earth is oriented upwards. Again, up is a strange word to use of the sphere. But let's say that assuming that, uh, that Antarctica and the Arctic are the poles, and we view that as up and down, latitude is between them. Longitude are essentially the lines that are drawn, the expanding, widening lines from um, pole to pole. And it was impossible to tell longitude. There's no way to tell it necessarily just from looking at the stars without an extremely complex degree of algorithms and computations, which led to great naval catastrophes because there were many people who felt that they were closer to certain lands and were actually far and starved to death. There were people who thought they were far from land and they were actually close and then scullied their, their, their ships on the rock. Wars were lost because of the lack of longitude and many lives were, were, were destroyed. And so, in fact, in the early 1700s, the British, the, the British government put out a reward of £20,000. You compute that into today's money, we're talking about well over, I'm trying to, to work out one point something million um, dollars today, it's a, it's a significant amount of money to discover how to calculate longitude. And there are two schools of thought. In fact, one was a school of thought and one was a school of artisanship. So the school of thought were those who said, well, if we use the charts and we work, at, work out specifically the difference of how would, uh, our position as related to the stars and the moon, we could work out an algorithm. But the problem is it keeps changing and it's very complicated. And they were working f uh, furiously on this. There was another theory, and that is that if we could create a clock which could survive and withstand the arduous nature of travel at sea, we would be able to work out longitude. Why? Because if it is a very simple calculation, and that is, is wherever it is exactly midday at this point in time, where I am, which I can work out, if I know where that is, I can, the, essentially time changes based on location. We, today we have 24 different swaths, where, which we call time zones. But before time zones were created, they were not created yet. Wherever I, wherever I stand, uh, wherever 12 o'clock midday is right now, and if I move somewhere else and I see where 12 o'clock midday is there, if I correlate the difference in time, I can correlate the difference in distance as well. But the problem was that no one had created a clock which could withstand being on the high seas. And there was an individual called William Harrison, as, as David pointed out, who was able to create the first clock which could withstand the high seas, and longitude was therefore discovered based on the watch, the clock, not based on the scientists, just to appreciate this. So when William Paley is discovering, describing the watch in 1802, he is describing the most sophisticated and advanced technological development which has saved humankind in the 1700s, to appreciate what he's saying, just to give it more, more complexity, right? We're talking about today what, what we could imagine what we'd supplant for what he's saying. We're, you know, we're talking about microprocessors, right, which could just suddenly, you know, the silicon blows in the wind to form, you know, a, a, a Pentium 5 chip, right? So we can, we can imagine the differences that we would, um, um, we, would, uh, um, we, would, we would suggest. Darwin, referencing in his notes later on, referencing William Paley, says the following in Source 19, Although I did not think much about the existence of a personal God until a considerably later in my life, in my life I will here give the vague conclusions to which I have, uh, I have been driven. The old argument of design by nature, as given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails, now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of the bivalve shell must have been that of intelligent being, like the hinge of the door by man. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and the action of natural selection than in the course by which the wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. That's what, that's what ultimately Darwin says, which means to say he's rejecting the argument of, by design, the argument of discovery God by design. In fact, so, so, so dangerous is this argument, or so prolific is this argument, that later on, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the perhaps most virulent 
um, um, atheists around, wrote a book in, 18, uh, in, in 1986 which, which was called The Blind Watchmaker, Why the Evidence of Evolution Reveals the Universe Without Design. Here are a few quotes just for our edification. The, uh, things exist because they have recently come into existence or because they have qualities that make them unlikely to be destroyed in the past. Right? Means that that's, the, that's ultimate natural selection. The bishop goes to the human eye asking rhetorically and with the implication that there is no answer. How could an organ so complex evolve? That is not an argument. It's simply an affirmation of incredulity. So, and finally, in the case of, the li of, of living machinery, the designer is unconscious natural selection, the blind watchmaker. And that's why he calls the book The Blind Watchmaker. The blind watchmaker is actually responding to Paley's notion that there must be a creator to the watchmaker. And his answer is, yes, you know what? Given enough time, given enough happenstance, enough failed options of watches which weren't on the ground, the watch will come into being. That's, what it, that's, that's, by the way, why all these different scientific theories converge. Because if you have enough time, you have enough chance, if you have enough of, an, of a natural selection mechanism, you will arrive at one watch which works. So don't tell me that this watch is, is incredible because there are many failed watches around creation which didn't make it because natural selection ruled them out. That's the, that's the argument that Richard Dawkins makes. And uh, so just, just to appreciate the, how, how far this has come. Now, now, now enters Rabbi Sachs. Okay, so by the way, it's, it's worthwhile noting, Rabbi Sachs was so well respected that in fact he was on the stage and had a debate with Richard Dawkins. It's worthwhile actually taking a look at the transcript and reading it. You can see it, you can see it online, reading his discussion. What a, what a profound perspective that, uh, that we, we have on our side of religion, an uh, individual who could represent us, um, speaking to somebody of, of this nature. Um, late, Richard Dawkins had another book called The Selfish Gene, where he argued that ultimately that's, we, we all survive because of selfishness, which is the opposite of Sir Francis Collins' language of God, but they actually were able to replicate a, a, a computer program which, which essentially evolved, a, pro a computer program um, in UCLA which was able to evolve and, the, only the, uh, and, and through selfishness evolved to cut out other parts of the program, right? So, so to speak, replicating this notion of evolution, which is what Richard Dawkins champions. Now, Sachs points out, and this is what we'll call cross-disciplinary, cross which is again the brilliance of Rao Sachs, is the following. He's going to, he gives an example, which is an example in history, in narrative, rather than history, an example in science. He talks about the situation we're about to hear in a number of parashios, where in parashios Vayeshev, Yaakov tells his son Yosef, who's the son, who's the, center, the epicenter of a large debate in the family, to go find his brothers who I found in Shechem. And he goes on to say that, uh, that he goes to Shechem and, and turns out that the brothers were not there in Shechem. And uh, so, he, although he could have turned around this point in time, having said, I fulfill my mission, he knows there's acrimony between him and his brothers, so he had every reason to say, thank you, very, thank you, but no thank you. In Pasuk Tezov in source 21, he says, he found him, A man found him, he was, he was straying in the field. He says, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Where are they? So he says, I heard them going to Dosan, and that's where he goes off. And we know the end of the story is that he goes there, he's almost killed, sold into captivity, and the whole mechanism of the, um, is set into motion. The Ramban. Oh, very good. So Rashi says that Malach is the, that, that Ish is a Malach Gabriel. But let, let's take this to further. Ramban says a brilliant, a brilliant perspective. I, I've read this Ramban many, many times. I never picked up on the diok that Rabbi Sachs pointed out. I never thought about this from this perspective ever before. The Ramban says, and he says, this is a very important passage to understand in Source 20, 22. He says, Yomar, 
כי הוא הטועה מן הדרך, ולא יודע עונה, ילך ונכנס פסודי כי במקום המירי הוא מבקש עשר, שהוא סמרייז לפסוק, ויעריך הכוסר בזה. Why is the פסוק spend so much time telling us all this, you know, who he asked directions from? I mean, like, that's this inconsequential detail of the story. להגיד, כי סיבוס רבוס באו אליו. There were many different possibilities that could have come to fruition, שהיה ראוי לחזור בלוי. That could have turned him around. אבל הכל סבל לכבוד אביו, but he's still, in honor of his father, he said, I'm going to carry on this mission. To tell us that Hashem has a plan and it's going to happen. And all diligence is, uh, is, is sheker, is false. And listen to this deal. Now, there's different ways of reading that. You could say that means to say that Hashem provided to him a guide on the road that Yosef didn't know about. There's another way of reading that. And that is, the Moraderech himself may not have known that he was the Moraderech. Which means... That even, it could, may, may well have been, not even Malach Gavriel. It could have been John who owned a gas station in Shechem. And John found a fellow who was, who was, uh, who was going along and, and said, you know what, I saw them. And you know what, at the end of the story, what does Yosef say to his brothers when he reveals himself in Parshish Vayigash? Source 23. Hashem sent me here to establish the world economy to be able to save many people. In Parshish God sent me here. He says, Think about that for a moment, what that means. That means to say that Yosef is identifying every different permutation, every binary or more complex than binary decision that he had to make in his life to get to this point of being sold to Mitzrayim was in fact God. But the person who did it didn't even realize that he was doing it. Which means to say that how does God, how is God revealed in the trajectory of history? is through multiple, multiple complex decisions of people who make decisions and they don't even realize they're making it. And that's the Gzera HMS Vacharitzos Sheker. Hashem has a plan. What a perspective of reading history. And it's so obvious. But why don't we read science the same way? Suggests Rabbi Sachs. Why can't you say, and this is scientifically true, there's a notion in science what's called convergence, which means you may have very different types of species, but the octopus's eye will evolve with the same mechanisms as the eye of a mammal on earth, even though there are different systems, which means there's a convergence, there's a direction in which life is evolving towards. It's not just haphazard that everything's happening. And by the way, every little uh, microevolution might in fact be shulamidaito, because that's the survival of fitness. That might be the mechanism employed. But who's running the system? And it only takes the retrospective to say, Kielo Kim, that Hashem was the one who was guiding this much more complex system. Now Rav Sachs moves not from the realm of narrative, of history, but he moves into the realm of marketplace and economics. Quoting the wealth, in the wealth of nations and Adam Smith, he says, and this is a very, very powerful and, and true idea, is starting on line three. As every individual therefore endeavors as much as he can both to employ his capital in support of domestic industry and so to direct the industry that is produced may be of the greatest value. Every individual necessarily labors to render neither, uh, sorry, render the annual revenue to of society as great as he can. He generally indeed neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much he is promoting it. That's how marketplace works. We're all after our own good. But preferring the support of domestic, that is, of, of foreign industry, he intends only in his own security. And by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be the greatest value. He intends only his own gain 
and he is in this, as in many cases led by the invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Meaning, why is it that the market trends upwards? Everybody's doing this for themselves. Everybody's trying to find the shortest route to get the most amount of money. That's what we're doing. But all together, says Adam Smith, one of the fathers, patriarchs of understanding commerce, says that there's an invisible hand guiding the process where it all comes together, all these individuals who are self-interested, who somehow produce an economy which evolves and ascends. Says Rabbi Sachs, isn't that, even looking at the economy, you have to appreciate that there must be an invisible hand. There are many Malach Gavriels along the way in the decisions made of every self-interested individual to arrive at an end which was ultimately intended. There's no other possible explanation that there has to be something like this. Now, he was not a God-fearing human being. He was not talking about this from a perspective, but there is something, the invisible hand of the market, where things are naturally rectified. Says, says Rabbi Sachs, and this is such a profound perspective, this is such a brilliant insight. In the Great Partnership in Source 25, Darwinian biology does not entail the absence of design. What Darwin refuted was not the argument from design, but Paley's version of it. The natural universe is not like a watch. It is not mechanical, a predetermined arrangement of interlocking parts. But who thought the universe was like a watch to begin with? Not the theologians, but the natural scientists and philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries, Newton, Leibniz, Laplace, Auguste Comte. They believed that all physical phenomena were determined by and could be predicted on the basis of simple laws like those of Newton. What was wrong with Paley's argument was not the theology, but the science. Good science refutes bad science. It tells us nothing at all about God. Such a brilliant insight. What he's saying is that Paley underestimated God. Paley thought the universe was like God. The universe was like a watch. And a watch is incredibly sophisticated. But it is a static creation formed by an artisan. The universe is much more complex than that. The universe was created last size as an evolving process of life. It was not a watch. And therefore, when finally science catches up and works out that the world was evolving, it's not refuting. It's giving much more hue and perspective to that. And finally, to conclude, in the, it's two pages later in the book, which is in, in, on page 229. Again, it's worthwhile reading oneself. Why would a creator choose to operate this way? Allowing species and eventually humankind to emerge obliquely rather than directly. Meaning, so many times we think that Hashem put into creation, boom, human being, boom, animal, boom, species in the sea, right? That's what we, we assume. That's what's called static creation. That would be analogous to Paley's watch, right? Suddenly, ex nihilo. But that's not what necessarily could have been happening. Why would God choose to create? And if you think about the, all the stages of creation from the beginning to the end, it moves in the same direction as evolution, starting from inorganic matter, water-based life, to avian life, to terrestrial life. That's the, exactly what evolution has said. It just, uh, we didn't realize that at the beginning because we didn't understand how evolution worked, right? So it's describing it. In fact, just to clarify one point, uh, this is a point I always mention, but so, uh, to me it's just very profound. It's my own uh, re reflection. Every gap in the development of evolution, there is a, there is a vayomer. There's 10 utterances, and each of those 10 utterances happen at a specific point where science has struggled to find the movement from aquatic life to terrestrial life, from, from, from inorganic life to life. Right? There's a, there, uh, uh, there, there are these what's called um, the missing links, which Stephen Gold explains in uh, Punctuated Equilibrium, that there was a speeding up process and a slowing down process to explain why we don't have the missing links. 
But at every moment in time that there was such a thing, there was a Vayomer. Hashem says, so to speak, Hashem's moving creation past that barrier, which science couldn't really explain how we move past that barrier. So says Rausaks, why would Hashem choose to create an evolu- evolving creation rather than a static creation? For the same reason that planned economies of the Soviet Union and the communist China failed and market economies of the West succeeded. <laughs> Again, it's cross-disciplinary. It's just brilliant, yeah. A planned economy fails to liberate, uh, to, to, uh, to liberate energies. It does not grant freedom. It, grants, it does not generate creativity. It is predictable, ungenerous, dictatorial, precisely the thing the God of Abraham is not. Darwinian evolution precisely fits the model I argued for, uh, for in chapter 1. In the case of Abrahamic monotheism and meaningfulness of life, the meaning of the system lies outside of the system. That, I argue there, applied to the system in general and to the universe as a whole. Any system, is made up, uh, any system is made up of rules that govern events within the system. Those rules must explain how the system works, but not why it was created or evolved. That is what da- da- uh, why Darwinian fulfills an important function of Abrahamic monotheism. It tells us that God, having created the conditions for life, transcends life as he transcends the universe. The, the Hebrew Bible is simply uninterested in Homo sapiens, the biological species. It is even relatively uninterested in Homo faber, the tool-making, environment-changing life form. It passes over in short order Yovel, the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock, Yuval, the first to play harp and flute, and Tulvalkayan, who forge all kinds of tools in bronze and iron. It is interested exclusively in Homo religiosus, the first humans to hear and respond to the divine source. Which means to say that ultimately it's much more complex of a creation to create a creation which evolves to be the sophisticated being who can understand and relate to our Baruch Hu as a whole. But coming back to the, further, the, the quote that started this whole discussion, science takes things apart to see how they work, religion puts things together to see what they mean. That is such a more sophisticated perspective. There's obviously a lot of questions which are still left now, but uh, I, I would encourage you to further reading to understand this in a more, in a more sophisticated way.